Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm uh, an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about, oh, I think it's 17 years now, and um, a podcaster of nine years. We've been doing this a long time, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, what's going on? It's Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I'm owner of Extreme Human Performance, LLC. do online training. And then coaching, do some online teaching, and faculty member at the Kerrig Institute for Functional Neurology. I'm right now in Hood River, Oregon, which is beautiful. If you hear a cat in the background, the place we're staying at, Bob the Cat gets a little bit crazy once in a while. So, You are like the Anthony Bourdain of science. <laughs> just everywhere yeah and I, plus i know you, yeah, it's beautiful out here you need to get back to food blogging some have you been doing that much lately you know i did post a few more pictures since i've been out here actually yeah okay I, yeah I've i gotta check kind of slacking on that so yeah <laughs> I, I, maybe i'm i'm sort of a food nerd but you know i think tc loma calls that food porn you know and it's just it's funny people like you like to look at that stuff you're like hey that looks healthy and delicious or maybe just indulgent you know yeah, we had the discussion at dinner last night. I was taking a picture of my food, and someone said, oh, have you been doing that for a while? I said, yeah, since like 2001. It's like, 2011? That's insane. I said, no, 2001, like back when you had to have like camera and yeah. film you had to develop and stuff. They were like, what? <laughs> Before it was cool or easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's true, yeah. Yeah, and let's face it, powerlifters, bodybuilders, any kind of strength training people, they're going to be interested in food. So, oh yeah, especially when I travel, because to me that was like all part of the experience. Too. Oh, it is absolutely everything else. All right, everyone, we have uh, two listener mails. Uh, one is a follow up, and one is a new one. Uh, we have two little studies, and when we come back from break, we actually did a crossover podcast a little bit. Uh, we interviewed Sal and Adam from the Mind Pump podcast. We've had two emails uh, in the past few months. Uh, about those guys with different kinds of opinions, but they were fun to talk to, and so that's what we're going to talk about after the break. Uh, Dr. Nelson is going to lead us through a cool little discussion on sort of the state of the fitness industry in general, I think. so. Yeah, okay. that was a, it's a fun interview. I got to meet them briefly when I was at uh, Paleo FX the one time. So, yeah, I think the listeners I think will enjoy it. Uh, okay. So this first question is for you. I, I sort of tabled it specifically for you, uh, Mike, because uh, Seb, Sebastian, sent us a, a number of questions about all kinds of things, uh, but one of them was about intermittent fasting, and I know this is an interest of yours, and you're pretty well read here. So Yeah. Um, he says, um, I currently fast four to five times per week for 12 to 16 hours. After everything that I heard about fasting, thanks to Rhonda Patrick, the benefits for health are numerous, like lowered inflammation, heart disease and cancer biomarker declines. Uh, it also helps to reduce my GERD symptoms, right? He's got acid reflux, everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, from, uh, from a being jacked perspective, what is your take on fasting and muscle gain? 
<clears throat> oh yeah. Um, hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I would start with that. I think there's a lot of benefits to intermittent fasting. I mean, I'm a big fan of it. I mean, I first used it. I was trying to think of the exact date the other time. I seven-ish years ago, maybe longer than that. Now, I first heard about it from uh, Brad Pilon, Eat Stop Eat, and I do like a lot of Rhonda Patrick stuff. Um, she's got a lot of good stuff. They're very cool. Got to hang out with them many times. And if you're doing it four to five times per week for twelve to sixteen hours, yeah, if you're really, really trying to maximize uh, lean muscle or muscle accretion it's probably not going to be the best, right? So here's the pro and the con, right? So the pro that I do like of fasting is that you're not eating anything, right? So my definition of intermittent fasting, and if you look at the literature, even the definition of what fasting is has been sort of bastardized. But basically intermittent fasting is a period of time where you're not eating anything that contains calories. So if he's doing 12 to 16 hours, four to five times per week, he has a period of those times when there's no calories coming in. So by definition, muscle protein synthesis, right, the process your body takes of those amino acids, those building blocks of protein and stuffing them into muscle to make it bigger. We're looking just specifically at muscle here. That process during fasting at best is maybe neutral, probably slightly maybe catabolic. It's a big debate about you know, where you kind of cross that line. Um, intermittent fasting itself is actually a catabolic process, uh, which really scares a lot of people. But by the term catabolic, we're meaning that you're just <clears throat> tearing things down to produce energy. So if your goal is to get leaner, that's actually a good thing. Um, if we look at studies that go up to maybe 24 hours in terms of how much muscle would you lose, from a period of fasting, probably not that much. Um, if you're weight training on that day, I would say you're probably going to be about neutral. Um, <clears throat> so the bigger issue is that when you're doing more fasting, you are missing those times that you can increase muscle protein synthesis. So you can go back and listen to the podcast we did with Jorn Tromelin. He had some really, really cool stuff. Um, on that, you can geek out on that. The, uh, the downside is that the whole muscle building process is extremely long, right? So I think if I remember right from the show, if you look at how much actually ends up per meal into muscle tissue at best, you're looking at around 20 grams-ish right, of grams. actual protein that's accumulated in the muscle. Yeah. So... It's pretty small. So I would say that if your goal is as much lean mass as possible, I usually will then limit fasting in those cases because I want to increase muscle protein synthesis as much as I can, as often as I can. The hard part is it's not a linear response, right? So if you go from no meals to one meal, that's a massive increase. One meal to two meal, yeah, better, not as much. Now you start getting in three to four, four to five, five to six. Yeah, now you're definitely kind of tapering off on that curve. Um, so last point, if your goal is kind of a hybrid of 
I want to gain as much lean muscle mass as possible. I still want some of the health benefits of fasting, and I'm still a little bit worried about body composition. Uh, what I do with those clients is I will have them do one longer fasting period. Uh, they'll work up to 19 to 24 hours and only do that once per week. So their overnight fasting window may be anywhere from eight to 10 hours or basically just while they're sleeping. What I like about that is so if Monday's your fasting day, initially it'll be an off day from training, you get the lower uh, insulin effects because you're not eating anything, that does push your body to use more fat, right, because insulin is your fuel selector switch. When it's lower, you're pushing the body to use more fat. When it's higher, you're pushing the body to use more carbohydrates. So you kind of get the quote-unquote body composition, fat use um, effects from your fasting day. But then you have the other six days out of the week where you're really working to kind of maximize that muscle protein synthetic response. Um, and that's kind of more of a template that I generally kind of follow myself. Um, I have a much harder time, you know, kind of gaining lean mass. So I, a lot of times I'll just do an overnight fast for, you know, 10 to 12 hours and call it there. But if I'm working on body comp, then I'll start adding in that one longer fasting period per week. Yeah, it does beg the question, some of what you just said about even meal frequency. You know, yeah. um, uh, I think it was, let me look here, episode 282, we had Dr. Bill Campbell on. And yeah. he was talking about, it was one of my favorite episodes, actually. I like to I talk Bill. to Bill. Yeah, he's a great guy. And, you know, he's sort of busting some myths about, yeah. you know, in fact, a lot of people, I think, in the know, aren't saying what we used to in bodybuilding, that you, you need to eat six or eight times a day. You know, yeah. and in fact, the mind pump guys are going to talk about that after the break a little. I, I do think that smaller, more frequent meals can be helpful for some people, depending on their genetics and their their behaviors, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, at the same time, it, it is an interesting topic. The first thing I thought of when Seb asked that was, how much of this is sleeping, right? I'm going to sure. presume that 12 to 16 hours includes an overnight of sleeping and maybe you know, half of the next day or a portion of the next waking day, uh, yeah. as opposed to sleeping for 12 hours and say, there, I fasted, <laughs> you know. Uh, so that's one of the first questions I have. And I think you agree with this, but I would certainly include, and Chris Shugart used to say this, sleep as part of those hours. I mean, if you're not going to eat. Definitely. Yeah, and you like to eat, sleep should be a portion of that that intermittent fast, I guess. So, yeah. Um, yeah, and I definitely agree with that. And a side note, I've had, I've lost track of how many clients I've done this with now. Just literally, like, <clears throat> not make any other changes. Take their sleep from six hours a night to just eight hours. Again, adding two hours every night for some people's schedule is hard. But pretty much across the board, in every single case, their body composition got better. Yeah. Yep. By literally, quote unquote, not doing anything. Right, not changing calories or anything else. So there's a whole bunch of mechanisms in the background from, you know, if you're really stressed, you don't sleep enough, your body shifts to use more carbohydrates. There's a study showing that put people in a metabolic chamber and you woke them up once every hour, they started shifting to use more carbohydrates. They shifted away from fat. You know, people tend to eat more when they're under uh, recovered and their sleep is messed up and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, I've often Plus, they're found... not up eating then. Yeah. 
Yeah. The extremes, the hormonal drivers of the extremes do something similar to me, which I think is weird. You tend to shift toward carb metabolism if either A, there's a ton of epinephrine, you know, adrenaline, noradrenaline yep. around, driving glycolysis and, you know, carbohydrate use. But then insulin, when it's constantly in the picture, also drives glycolysis. It sounds ironic, but it does. And in yeah, either case, high levels. Yeah, you're you're kind of shifting to a yep. carbohydrate. Your your body's in a sense biochemically forgetting how to burn fat. And I know that's one of your, your messages, I think. So, uh, yeah, it's it's cool. It's a good question. And I think a lot of it's goal-oriented. And I like what you said about the idea is how much do you want to cash in on every opportunity to maximize muscle protein synthesis, you know? And if your goal is body comp and some fat loss, uh, I don't think you have to worry uh, quite as much. You know, I, one of the best things I would do is every Friday I would do – sort of one of those pulse fasts that Chris Shugart sort of promoted, mm -hmm. which is essentially just half a scoop of protein with a little bit of extra leucine in it and sip it like every 90 minutes or something like that. And I don't really consider that a meal because I was kind of fasting, but the idea would be to trickle in just a little bit of protein synthetic, you know, uh, leucine or accompanying amino acids and hold on to whatever muscle I could during what would otherwise be a fast. So there's even a spectrum. I like also what you said about define fast. Do you mean nothing? You know, do you yeah. mean, can you trickle in a little bit of amino acids here and there? You know, stuff like that. So it's a good question, and it's not an easy one. So that's, thanks, Seb. That was good. Yeah, and the last point I had on that, too, is I had a client who, <clears throat> we couldn't figure anything out. I'm like, why is she not losing any weight? Her performance is good. Everything else is looking good. And so I started asking more and more questions. And eventually I, I asked her about caffeine intake. And I said, well, how's your caffeine intake? She's like, oh, you know, it's better. I only have about six cups of coffee a day. Mm. And I'm like, wow, that seems pretty high, a little better than where you were before. And I said, do you just drink coffee black? She's like, oh, no, I've been uh, putting coconut oil in it. I'm like, oh. Mm. I said, well, how much coconut oil? And she was back, one tablespoon. That's like 14 like, grams of fat. teaspoon or did you mean tablespoon? He's like, no, one tablespoon in each cup of coffee. So I'm thinking, that's six extra tablespoons of coconut oil that I had, like, completely not accounted yeah. for. Yeah, that's like 120 calories or more, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, for each. I was like, oh, well, I think we found our issue. Yeah, that could add up. Even yeah. if it is mostly MCT or, or what have you, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Okay. All right, uh, we're going to keep moving along because this is going to be an extra long episode today, I think, because of uh, having the Mind Pump guys on. This next one is from Rob. He sent us a nice, long email. Uh, he says, hi, thank you so much uh, for the email. It really means a lot because we always, when people become supporting members, we personally send out something that says, thank you for supporting you know, the show, better internet you know, quality uh, for fitness information, that sort of thing, and, and you're appreciated, right? So... Those emails, by the way, if you ever get one, they're real. That's really one of us sending you one. It's, it's not a, a bot, you know. Anyway, um, I've learned so much. I always look forward to the new podcast. I initially found your material on T Nation. Big fan of T Nation as well. I've been using Biotest products for years. Uh, he's, he's actually a, a bodybuilder, competitive bodybuilder, Rob is. Uh, your articles on fasted cardio and, you know, protein intake, things like that, very helpful with my contest preps. Uh, your data-driven approach really resonates with me. 
So good on you, Rob, for, for that right out of the gate, right? Evidence-based is one of the reasons we do this. So much of what you get on YouTube and in podcast, it's it's sort of loosely evidence-based, but I can tell you, Dr. Nelson and myself and and Phil too, although he's he maybe a little bit less on the academic side currently, it's evidence. We'll tell you where it was published, who said it, you know, we cite sources. So and you should expect more, right? Set your bar high yeah. for what you what you consider evidence. And Rob does apparently. So he says, uh, I'm not a huge guy by nature, so I need every advantage I can get. Iron Radio delivers every time. Uh, I'm sure you have a ton of material for the shows, but if possible, I won't read all this, but uh, if possible, I'd like to throw a request in the ring. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the post-contest rebound, specifically the mythical window of opportunity to put on solid, uh, lean mass. Some say post-contest is an ideal time to put on new muscle as the body is severely depleted and ready to soak up everything you put in it, uh, providing that training is properly maintained. Others say there is no evidence for this. Uh, as with many things in bodybuilding, anecdotal evidence plays a large role. Personally, I have done four contests over the span of two years. Uh, and each time after coming off of prep, I've been so motivated to finally be able to eat again and feel good in the gym. I've made significant gains in size and strength post-show. Uh, my reverse diets have been on point. Not quite meticulous like the very controlled you know, contest diet. Uh, but I'm always right back in the gym. Uh, Monday after a show, I'm shocked at how quickly my strength improves and surpasses uh, previous numbers, as well as the size gains. Each year, I've been able to increase my maintenance calories, handle more carbs, improve body comp, uh, you know, that sort of thing. I'd love your thoughts. Well, let me tell you, as someone who has competed a number of times, um, I know what you're saying. I, my gut feeling is immediately, like in that Monday or the following week, a lot of bodybuilders actually look better than they do on stage, you know, because they, yeah. they fill up their glycogen stores, right? Their muscles are brimming with carbohydrates. Their v blood volume's up a little. They're more vascular. They're still really lean. Um, and I can tell you, the last time I competed, I bitched about it a lot on the show, but um, I hurt myself, you know, little nagging injuries. One of my still have to this day, uh, but... Uh, they improve radically when you can actually start eating and, you know, your sleep is better because you're not using sort of dietary stimulant type stuff and pre-workouts, coffee, whatever it is that you're leaning on so hard because that last month before a contest is so not sustainable, you know, and you're just strung out. So a lot of it, the immediate is water balance and re-stuffing your muscles essentially with carbohydrates. Um I know that after a diet, and you're right about keeping tabs on, on a reverse diet, you don't just go nutso. Uh, like this last time I competed, I, I had a good indication it was my last hurrah, so I ate quite a few blizzards. <laughs> that's, not the way, that's not the way to do it. You don't go to Dairy Queen for your refeed if you're serious about continuing to co repeat, you know, compete. However... Uh, I was injured. I was strung out more than ever before. I'm not sure a mid-40-year-old body likes that kind of thing like a 20- or 30-year-old body does. But in any case, um, when you watch that refeed, you do have to be careful because there are enzymes like LPL, lipoprotein lipase, right? It's an enzyme, and it becomes very active when you're in a very depressed um, calorie balance. And when you start to refeed, your body, through evolution, right, across the eons, has really become good at, hey, I better pack this shit away, frankly, you know, so you do store uh, a take up and store fat more readily because of enzymes like LPL, things like that. Um, whether or not 
there's something magical happening with protein synthesis. I would think that on some level, muscle tissue has a similar response to, to fat tissue. Maybe, I, I don't think I would call it mythical, and I think that's why Rob said it that way. Um, isn't it an advantage? Maybe, and maybe this even plays back to the intermittent fasting idea. I know there was a, a lot of ideas tossed around on the testosterone.com website years ago that intermittent fasting should be followed up with some big eating. Well, I would, boy, you got to be careful with that. By big eating, I think you really got to define yeah. it. You know, lots of extra protein maybe or enough carbohydrates to refill your muscles. Um, but, boy, you'd have to be careful going hog wild like with cheat meals and stuff like that. When you hear bodybuilders do that, if they're low carb all week long, they might eat literally a chocolate cake or a whole large pizza on the weekend, but then they're going to cycle back to essentially a semi-fasted state the following week, you know, because there's no way when you spread that pizza back across the last week, it's going to equal the number of calories you've withheld, you know, or carbohydrates. So, um, uh, there may be something to it. I mean, the average person certainly isn't doing that. You know, they're not going to become 15 or 20 week depleted and then see what they can do to their muscle mass afterwards. It's too weird of a you know, self-experiment, but bodybuilders will do it. So there may be something to it, but boy, I'd say be very cautious because you have a depressed metabolic state. You know, your BMR is lower. Um, your muscle mass is probably lower. Uh, even even somebody who knows how to diet, they lose muscle mass, at least some on a diet. And so you're in a very precarious state. A cautious refeed, though, with tons of protein and um, you know a stepwise, just like you might progress downward in a 20-week diet, you might want to progress back upward. There may be something to the muscle regain. I haven't seen any evidence for that, like literally like research-based evidence. Uh, but I don't know. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I would generally agree. Um, if you look, there's, uh, I think, a couple studies now on uh, case studies, um, uh, natural bodybuilder competitors. And, again, it's very few <clears throat> data points, but they do kind of indicate that the last few weeks to a few months, you know, body comp um, is generally really good, right, because you're going to step on stage. But the some interesting points about loss of lean body mass. And you, you talk to some competitors too, and you've mentioned this before, Lonnie, that, okay, how much muscle am I going to kind of give up at the end just to get a little bit leaner, Yeah. right? And you're kind of walking that tightrope of, you know, and a lot of the, the, at least for the natural side, people are judged on leanness because that's kind of the biggest thing you can see as a differential between one person versus the next and you can get into judging and all that kind of stuff too. Um, so maybe that lean body mass kind of pops back up, you know, once you you're done competing. So maybe you gain a couple more pounds pretty fast. Um, I've just seen way too many people go the other extreme yeah. and, yep. you know, four, four weeks into it post contest, they're like, this is great. I've eaten, you know, all these carbs. My lifts are up. Oh, life is wonderful. Eight weeks, they're like, I look like I've never dieted in my entire life. Yes. Why did I screw up the last eight weeks of my life? And <laughs> it's it's amazing how much your whole um, physique turns to shit. <laughs> yeah. If you if you go whole hog, you know, like you just go back to, I don't know, yep. the occasional quarter pounder kind of thing. So. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of, you know, reverse dieting, at least have some plan 
because you know <clears throat> just a handful of competitors I've worked with, and they they usually have some other metabolic or biomechanics or some other issues going on too. Um, I'm a huge fan of using heart rate variability with them because there's a tendency, and I see this more in female competitors, that once you step off stage, your brain goes, okay, I made my goal, I'm done, all my stress is back to zero, I don't have to worry about anything, and then you show them this graph that says, yeah, your baseline stress level is, you know, 15 off of where you're normally at, you know, basically saying you're just because you've completed your show, your body's stress has not just magically disappeared overnight. Yeah, yeah. Because right? all of that is accumulated. And they kind of, everybody kind of knows that, but it's, I think, super easy to forget that you've got this, you know, state your body doesn't want to be in. And you've got this, in pretty much every case that I've done so far, this massive amount of accumulated stress that you need to also get back to baseline. And so for female competitors, I have a little rule that we don't even talk about you doing another show until I see that get back to baseline and maybe get even a little bit better. And then we'll discuss how long you want you to stay there. And then we can talk about potentially yeah. getting ready for another show. Yeah, that's similar to what I do. When I work with uh, especially female competitors, yeah. I haven't worked with a guy much uh, in the past few years. I just don't have time. But, yeah, I, I mandate a six-week refeed. Like, we're going to bring you back up out of this, you know, because for yeah. some women, of course, they can become so lean they lose their period temporarily. And you can't just oh, walk away from a client like that, that's amenorrheic like no. that. You know, no. so you, you got to, you, you, you have, if, if you walk the line between being an, a responsible healthcare professional and a contest prep person, because a lot of the contest gurus sure aren't going to do this, you want to bring the person back. And like you said, they're hormonally, they're, they're not in a, in necessarily good state, their nervous system, like you said, high stress, they're probably hypothyroid or at least somehow disturbed thyroid function. There's so many things that are going on with that. So, yeah. So I, I don't know. Um, honestly, Rob, uh, if you could do that cleanly and you feel like you make gains and you don't just turn into a beanbag chair, great. You know, um, yeah, it sounds like it went really well for him. So it sounds like the he knows approach he's, he's using by all indicators have been really good. So, yeah. Okay, uh, I'm going to table this next one. I have an interesting study. Strength and muscle sport news. There's been a lot of stuff in the news lately about how cheese and maybe casein peptides are addictive. Interesting yeah, stuff. Um, yeah. I'm yeah, I'm not going to touch on this right now. I think it's an it's a classic. I'm going to go on a rant. I'm sure um, about how science journalists bastardize stuff. Oh, God. And in fact, this article, uh, which is by Bethany Brookshire in Science News, um, that's kind of what she's pointing a finger at. It's, oh, my God. You know, you guys misreported this. This is irresponsible journalism. So we'll talk about cheese or casein and whether or not it's addictive next week. Uh, I just wanted to finish with one thing before we go to break. Uh, I told Chris Shugart we would give a shout out, and I think I did a little bit on uh, a compilation. I like these little compilations that they do. Um, uh, Mike, you and I obviously both contributed to this one. It's the yeah. best best muscle-building breakfast. Uh, fuel your workouts, make gains, and get ripped. Uh, this is, just um, came out about a week ago. Um, the overwhelming message when you leaf through this, and I mean, you've got people that I, I respect his opinions, uh, culinary and metabolically, guys like Chris Shugart, uh, T.C. Luoma, who is such a contrarian. You know, he loves to shock people, yeah. but he's so smart. 
Um, anyway, um, and then you've got you know the nerd contingent like me and Dr. Nelson here, and you got some pro bodybuilders. The overwhelming message is oats, berries, and some version of eggs and veggies <laughs> for, <Yeah>. for breakfast, <laughs> which is funny because so I just kind of summarized this entire piece for you. But if you want to go see nuances from each person, you know Chris Shugart, I think has a lot of the same opinions that I do. You know, uh, it's hard to be oatmeal with some protein in it in the morning. You know, it's good to get your uh, energy, you know, carbohydrates stores and fuel to, you know, work throughout the day. Um, your training will be better. A lot of things. People who eat breakfast instead of skipping it entirely. He's a big fan of that. Um, I like what Chris does with the old fashioned oats. He'll soak them overnight in water or almond milk. So just like Ooh. he might soak beans instead of just cook them, he soaks them and he puts two scoops of their metabolic drive, their protein. Um, I believe that is a um, whey casein mix. You'd have to go look, everybody. But and then he'll throw in a handful of nuts or berries. Uh, that's what I did this morning. You know, a handful of nuts and berries with some. I just use straight whey protein. Uh, but soaking them overnight the night before is a neat idea. He said, if you really don't like oatmeal, uh, hot rice cereal can be good too. As I leaf through this, there's some pro bodybuilders uh, consuming berries, eggs with spinach. Some people like whole eggs. Some people will say egg whites. Uh, I tend to do sort of a mix. Uh, I'll throw in a couple of whole eggs, but I like the taste of egg whites. Maybe it's all those years of, yeah. you know, of, of eating them, <laughs> of eating them. But uh, TC says bacon and eggs with toast and a cup of Joe, and and then he explains why. You know, so and he's he's probably right. That's how people ate breakfast back in the seventies. And I can tell you, when I was a oh, kid, yeah. people weren't that fat <laughs> compared to now. And they had bacon and eggs and a cup of you know a piece of toast and some coffee. Um, I like my whey and berry oatmeal. Mike, I think you said probably omelet and veggies or eggs and veggies. <clears throat> yep, yep. Any nuances there you want to share? No, the only thing I threw in because there's a little background scene is that there's a word limit on it, and I didn't know how hard they were going to be on it, so I was like actually cutting everything down to like the word and then realized that wasn't really oh, <laughs> that hard yeah. of a limit. Right. Um, so, yeah, I just had a thing where if you take garlic, you cut it up, and leave it sit for about 10 to 15 minutes. If you're looking for something that's uh, antibacterial, antiviral, I'm unfortunately just getting over a little bit of a cold here, um, that actually works really good. And oh. what happens is when you cut it, the compounds that have those properties have to be exposed to the oxygen. So the finer you cut it and leave it sit for about 10 to 15 minutes, you get a higher amount of those compounds. So I've even had people just you know, do that and then just sprinkle a little bit on their food at the end if they like garlic or you can do the hardcore manly approach where you just eat it raw and then wash it down with a little bit of honey to kill the taste. Mm. So the, if I remember right, you have to refresh me, Allian and Allison, I think, are some of those compounds Correct. in garlic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's right. So, yeah, neat. There's a couple of things in there they haven't dis discovered yet, but yeah, those are the main two. Yeah, I eat a lot of garlic on food, actually. We get the diced stuff in a jar. I don't know if it is as good as the fresh. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, cool. Nice little nugget. And All one right. last tip on the oatmeal, too, that I've done lately is uh, you can buy, like, a, a rice cooker from Amazon. I got one that's all uh, stainless steel. It's a smaller one, I think, for, like, 30 bucks. And you can put the old-time, uh, not the quick oats, but the <clears throat> steel-cut, slow-cut um, oats in there and then just run it like a rice cooker and it'll take you know 20 to 30 minutes and the nice part I like about that is it's just super easy you just 
plug it in, turn it on, and then, you know, 20, 30 minutes later, you got your oatmeal. Oh, yeah, sweet. I would think with rice, at least I've done this, you can pre-prep that stuff pretty well, you know, where oh. you just make a bunch of rice. And as long as you eat it in within a couple of days, after you start pushing a week and it gets a little bit uh, stale. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but All right. No, good stuff. All Ooh. right. Uh, everybody, we are going to uh, go to break. When we come back, Dr. Nelson's going to lead us through a chat with Sal and Adam from uh, Mind Pump Radio uh, in this what's becoming a megasode. <laughs> sort <of>. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so let, we'll go to break. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you, uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle. Oh, you poor meathead. All that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book. But that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hey, we're back from break here. Uh, this is Dr. Mike C. Nelson. Got Lonnie here and also Phil. And we've got the guys from the Mind Pump podcast on for talking about the state of fitness this week and our topic of the day. So uh, do you guys want to just briefly introduce yourself there? Uh, yeah, my name's Sal DiStefano. I've been uh, professionally in the fitness industry for over 20 years, everything from a uh, personal trainer to a trainer of trainers, uh, managing um, large box 
health clubs, owner of uh, wellness facilities, uh, and entrepreneur in fitness um, now for about 13 of those 20 years. Um, and now I host a podcast, Mind Pump, uh, which is a fitness slash comedy uh, podcast where we try to cover topics um, that we think uh, resonate with the average person and help people uh, move along the, the fitness journey and, and really try to uncover a lot of the uh, the myths uh, that we find in mainstream fitness that you see all the time when you turn on your television or read a magazine or go on the internet. And I'm Adam Schaefer, one of the other hosts of Mind Pump. And real similar to Sal, the only difference is uh, he's a little bit older than I am, so he's got about 20 years. I got about 16 years in the industry, very similar path as him. Uh, he is a little more wellness and strength focused. Uh, I would say I'm more bodybuilding aesthetic focused. I'm also a uh, men's physique pro, so I went through the whole IFBB circuit, and uh, that's both of our backgrounds. We all where we all got together, uh, including Doug, our producer, and uh, saw a lot of stuff that was going on in the fitness industry, and felt that there's not a lot of good voices out there to uh, express what's going on and the direction that we thought it needed to go and. I felt like it was going the wrong direction. So did Sal, so did Justin, so did Doug. And he said, you know what, why don't we get on a podcast and share all of our experience in this message? Cool. So you guys had mentioned that you feel the fitness area is going in the wrong direction. Can you elaborate more on that for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I really got into fitness personally um, as a kid. I was real young. I was about maybe 13 years old and what motivated me to, to the weights was uh, were insecurities. I think a lot of people, especially a lot of men in particular, will get into lifting weights because we feel skinny or you know we want to improve or change something about ourselves. And so that's what I did. And it was driven by insecurities. And I, without realizing it, this is something I realized much later on, was how much of the fitness industry uh, was geared around that. And so I tried uh, every supplement um, you could think imaginable. I did every routine in, in every magazine that I found. And, uh, I, you know, through years and years of trial and error, I, I realized um, a lot of the information I was getting was, uh, was false. Uh, a lot of the stuff I was reading, a lot of the supplements I was taking uh, wasn't doing much for me um, in terms of my progress um, at all. Um, I also, as I got older and, you know, managed some of these big box gyms and had trainers working underneath me who then had clients, I realized that the mainstream fitness uh, industry was not the answer. And, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, in, in, this, in Western societies, in, in particular in America, we have these uh, health epidemics, chronic health epidemics, uh, obesity and diabetes and, you know, autoimmune disease. And, you know, people just seem to be gaining more weight and getting less fit and uh, fitness really should be the answer to that. And instead what ended up happening was this, uh, this churn and burn effect. You know, I'd, I'd manage these massive health clubs where we'd get thousands and thousands of uh, workouts a day. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, dues bases in the 200 and $300,000 range every single month. And a lot of that was drop off and new enrollment. And it, the, the numbers were even more bleak when, we would find out how, uh, how often people would use the gym. And uh, a paradigm-shattering moment for me was when uh, we sat down in a big meeting, me and the, you know, I was uh, among uh, some of the, the top-performing clubs in a very, very large corporate uh, fitness organization. We sat down and uh, we, found, we figured out that the average member would buy a membership 
pay their monthly dues and would really use the gym for about three months and they'd keep their membership for something like nine to 12 months. And uh, then I realized the model was designed around that because I'd see, oh, well, we have all yeah. these members and um, gosh, if everybody showed up at the same time, there wouldn't be enough room in here. It's screwed. And um, I, I was like, this is not, something's not right here. Uh, you know, fast forward, I own my own wellness facility and I call it wellness because uh, at the time I didn't realize it was a wellness facility. You know, I was a, I was in the fitness side of it, but I did bring people in from other aspects of health, mainly because I wanted to offer this to my customers. It wasn't necessarily because I really understood those aspects, but I had somebody who did nutrition, but she was on the wellness side and would do food intolerance testing and was kind of on that, what I consider the woo-woo side. And then I had these massage therapists who would do things like meditation and would work people with people's breathing patterns. And I didn't really, you know, for me, it was like, okay, you guys do your thing. I'll do my thing. And it's cool because we're all under my, my roof. But as I worked with them, I realized that there's not only is there crossover, but, uh, and benefit from doing all these things, but they all should be, uh, combined in, uh, what, you know, you, people use the term wellness. I wish there was a better term now because even wellness has been turned into a marketing term, but, um, how it's all kind of one. And uh, once I started understanding that, um, the results people got, the consistency I saw with members, I mean, I, we had clients that would come consistently for 12 years, you know, and I never saw that in, uh, in my big box gyms or at least with that approach. And um, so when you look at mainstream fitness, you, you see it's either one or the other. You either have the you know, the, you know, fitness, the, the, the hardcore fitness, lose weight, build muscle, get ripped side, or you have the wellness, you know, uh, wear, you know, hemp t-shirts and sandals and eat granola, but don't even ever touch a weight side. And I, I saw all of that and I said, why can't we do all that? And, uh, I think the average person could benefit from a little bit of all that. And um, you hear a lot of that, a lot of that in our podcast, in our Mind Pump podcast. Which- well, the the worst part about it is the people that are giving the advice. And this was something I had a very similar experience as Sal did coming up through a, the largest fitness chain uh, in the world, and and got to grow through its its heydays and and experience the same thing and see that. And then when I had my experience uh, getting into competing, I was even more fascinated. By these were the people that we when we walk through a grocery store and you look at Shape Magazine, Men's Health, uh, this is all these are all my peers, all the other pro men's physique and bodybuilders and you know women's bikini athletes, and I, I remember getting involved in it and not knowing anything about it. I never I didn't grow up with this desire to compete one day. I did it for marketing reasons. I thought I wanted to get into. Uh, marketing myself on social media and build an online business. And I thought, well, one of the best ways for me to get out there and do that is to attract attention through competing and make a name for myself within the circuit. And as I dove into it, uh, I'll never forget the very first show, standing backstage and getting to know all the other competitors and athletes back there and kind of talking to them about their diet and what their coach had put them on and how they were training. And I was just blown away by we I was standing next to what I would call the one percent of the one percenters right so the elite physiques in the country and these people had really no idea what they were doing they were just doing what they were told by their coach and a lot of that information although they didn't look it they looked amazing the information that they were getting was awful 
And and then I thought, whoa, this is crazy. These are the guys and girls that everybody's looking up to. We're lo- looking at them at magazines where they got a million followers on Instagram. And these are the people that are, are sharing the advice and information. And it was unbelievable how bad it was. And that was at the amateur level. And then as I started to progress up, I thought, okay, well, maybe this is just because these guys and girls are, you know, they're just amateurs. They're, you know, the pros, they're going to, they're going to be the smart ones. They're going to know how you're supposed to do this. And that's why they're pros. And I worked my way up to the professional level and I found the same thing. And I thought, wow, this is a major problem that the people that everybody's aspiring to be like really doesn't understand health and fitness. And just because they look good aesthetically doesn't mean they understand what's best for the body. And in fact, I found some of the worst eating disorders in the in the competitive world than I had ever seen in the thousands of clients that I had trained in my previous 15 years in the industry. And that just blew me away. So to me, I think that um, that was a lot of what inspired Mind Pump was when we got together and we started talking and sharing all this information and I thought somebody's got to come out and, and talk about this because I feel like it's a losing battle for the people out there that are giving good information. Like you guys yourself, I mean, it's hard to find these really, really smart doctors that are out there that are actually getting on to social media or podcasting. Most of them are in practices. They're behind the scenes. They're actually doing all the hard work, but they're not getting all the recognition because they don't have the prettiest face to put on a magazine or they're not well known because they're attached to somebody. And we felt that was a major issue. And it was a, it became a goal of ours to make a name for ourselves, create ourselves as uh, an authority in the industry, and then to introduce people to some of the brighter minds in fitness and share them. You know, actually, one of the one of the co-founders of Iron Radio, Rob, Rob Fortney, he was an editor at Muscle Mag International for years and years, and he ghost wrote for these fitness and bodybuilding pros like you're talking about, right? And he would constantly bitch with me, you know, off air, of course, but oh my God, these guys are, they're they're just so ignorant. They have no idea what they're talking about. Holy Christ, you know, so Rob would actually make them sound at least articulate, you know, and then if they said something completely bass backwards about how they dieted or something funky, he would kind of tweak it and make it sound a little more professional. But that's part of the reason for Iron Radio, too, right? Because uh, Phil and myself and Rob, we all worked in magazines and uh, online forums and, you know, writing fitness articles and that sort of thing. And you start to realize, yeah, the guys at the top and the gals at the top, um, holy God, you know, they're not really... Um, equipped you know to give advice it's it's, a lot of times it's the it worked for me so it'll work for you too kind of thing and i think of of course the elephant in the room is always you know i'm going to leave out the topics you know the the, like you said the extreme diet like the eating disorder type stuff the drugs the maybe just the genetic uh, aspect of it you know and so they're they're just beneficiaries of genes and drugs and no I don't want to take away from the, the discipline that these guys have right and that sort of thing and I, I think the general public thinks anybody who you know looks good oh they just take steroids you know kind of thing or but at the same time yeah these guys were woefully inequipped to um, to give advice and we live in an era of the internet where it's not like the old days where Rob was at the magazine you had an editor sort of filtering 
and professionalizing what these guys say. I mean, some of these competitors, Rob would show me what they actually submitted him. They can't even string together a complete sentence. And again, that sounds stereotypical. They're not all like that. But at the same time, you, you know, with, without editors, right, anybody can publish their own shit. So we end up with this free-for-all of misinformation on YouTube and podcasts and stuff because you don't have that editor gatekeeper. Well, what, what blew me away, I remember one of the most mind-blowing events for me uh, coming up in this uh, in fitness was realizing, because what people need to understand is most of the information that we get uh, through fitness, and even now, is pushed by those that kind of hold uh, the loudspeaker. And the people that hold the loudspeaker are the ones that uh, sell uh, products uh, like supplements or equipment. So a lot of the information that was promoted or pushed uh, and that ended up becoming common knowledge, what we considered common knowledge, wasn't accurate information at all. Like when, you, when I discovered that you know eating every hour, every two hours wasn't really necessary and I realized that, wait a minute, that sells more protein powders and bars or that a lot of the uh, fitness uh, information we got on how to work out, you know, the weeder principles of fitness, those were designed to sell magazines. <laughs> you know, uh, Arthur, yeah. Arthur Jones designed his training methodologies to sell Nautilus equipment. And it wasn't really these, it wasn't the best information, it was the best information to sell their products. And once I started uncovering that, it fucking blew me away. One of the, another, one of the most mind-blowing things that happened to me as a trainer, I'd have these clients who'd hire me and were really, really hardcore and be like, okay, Sal, I'll, I'll hire you. you. I'll do whatever you want. I'll train with you five days a week or whatever. And I'd have these you know, men and women train with me and I'd take them and I'd put them on a body part split because that's what I felt was the most effective type of training for everybody. And uh, I remember switching them to a, just a basic, what I was taught was like, this is the most basic way of training. And after about five months, you have to progress from this, a full body routine. And I'd get clients who'd been body part split training for years. I'd put them on a good old fashioned full body type routine and boom, five, you know, five, eight pounds of muscle in like a month. And it would blow me away. And I'd look at the old, you know, articles in old bodybuilding magazines, and I found that these old timers used to train this way. And why is that more effective for everybody that I'm training? Is everybody's genetics just, just not just horrible, or is there something going on here? And uh, and then now, of course, you see science to show that for most people, that kind of frequency of training each body part tends to work better. And for most people, you know, eating small meals throughout the day does absolutely nothing. May actually contribute to inflammation. Uh, of the gut for some people, and just the, the it just goes on and on. You know, training to failure all the time. That was another mind blowing thing for me. Was, gosh, if I take my clients to failure every <clears throat> single time we train, they start to regress. And if I stop a little bit short of failure, uh, they start to progress and do better. Well, and, and there's an epidemic right now. When you talk about that right there, I mean, when you if you follow social media trends and things right now. I mean, you can look under the hashtag beast mode, no days off. Yep. This is the, me <laughs> yep. this is the message. Yep. That, this is the message that's out there is, you know, it's not about, it's like everyone trying to become a martyr. It's who can train harder, who has more, oh, yeah. who has more discipline. And I remember that standing backstage and talking to these guys. And like you said earlier, not to take anything from them and their discipline. Cause let me tell you, 
these guys have some discipline. That's because, about all they have because they're do, they're doing a lot of the shit the hard way. I'm listening. I'm listening to like tilapia and broccoli for nine weeks. It's crazy. Like I don't know anybody that could do that, and it's it blows my mind that they had the coaches that were telling them that and. You know, it turns into this who is willing to sacrifice more, push harder, and it, it's the wrong message. It doesn't have to be that way. And I think that that's a lot about what we talk about on, on Mind Pump because we just try to be – in fact, and we get made fun of a lot. They call us like Team No Sweat because we're we're telling people like, listen, you know, our, our bouts of cardio every single day and 1,300 calories is not the way to get yourself shredded because even if you do, it's going to be short-lived because nobody's going to live their life like that all the time. Well, your body starts to adapt in that direction. I remember having a, a, one, you know, a, a female competitor – you know, a 130-pound female eating 260 grams of protein, doing two hours of cardio a day, and she was just flabbergasted when I told her, well, why don't you just cut an hour of cardio and bring your protein intake down to like 170? I know you like a lot of protein. And she was like, I'm going to lose all this muscle. I said, no, 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 no. Just cut. Why don't you cut your protein and save that hour on the treadmill? And uh, And she was blown away by how her body responded, but... I mean, the messages that we're getting, the information that we're getting is so inaccurate. Well, it's geared by the supplement industry. Like you said, when you talk about small meals, when you hear about the studies that come out with, because this is something else we talk about. We talk a lot about protein intake. We think it's, you know, people, you know, hold it up in this regard. Like it's the holy grail that the more you take, the more muscle you're going to build. And that was the other, I'd hear these bodybuilders or these men's physique athletes taking in 300, 400, some of them 600 grams of protein. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself, what the hell are you, why are you eating that much? And then you're turning around and you're like, Sal was saying, getting on a treadmill for an hour or two. I'm like, it just doesn't make sense. Like, why would you do that? Why would you push, stress the body on the cardio? So you're already sending a signal that, you know, muscle, adding muscle or building muscle may not be the best thing. Then on top of that, you're over consuming protein. You're probably bloated half the time and stuffing yourself with that. Who knows how you're pooping after? I mean, it was just a, a, a crazy mess. And to see it, at the elite level, I, right away, this light bulb went off like, okay, if these are, are what people think are our fitness leaders, the ones on covers of magazines, the ones that we're aspiring to be like, these cannot be the people that are delivering the message to the masses. Somebody's got to say something. Well, and you know, to say nothing of the idea that when they're on the cover of a magazine, it's such a temporary state of being. And I think the average person doesn't get that, right? I mean, not just the the fake tan and all the other stuff, but I mean, they are they have done a target date 12 to 20 week diet. That's not how they always look, right? But the average person looks at this look at the cover of the magazine. They're like, "Holy shit, I want to look like that." You know, that guy must look like that all the time. And I think when you compete, you really start to get this idea of how very temporary that look even is. What's crazy is a lot of a lot of these guys and girls, you know, what they do is they take all these photos, you know, right around contest time, and then they drip them oh, yeah. on all, they use. All, all year long. And it's like... It's they they just feed right into that that false perception that people already have of oh this guy looks like this or this girl looks like this year round and it's like no he doesn't yeah. no she doesn't but they put it out there on and I mean it's going to the extreme there's th these people are 
renting Lamborghinis. They're having all these crazy photo shoots. I mean, they're putting on this image. I mean, social media has now become, you know, commercials are dead. Marketing through TV and radio is dead. It's all going to be digital streaming media. And it's you see it happening already. We use a, a company, uh, Shreds, as a great example of somebody, a, a company that didn't exist 10 years ago that exploded all through Instagram through putting out this. It's an, it's an image company, you know, and when I went to my first Olympia about five years ago, I, I'll never forget calling the boys back at Mind Pump and going, you guys are not going to believe what I'm seeing right now. And they're like, what do you see? And I'm like, I just walked into Olympia and I'm looking over at Mr. Olympia standing behind a booth and there's literally nobody wanting to talk to him. And there is a line out the door for this Instagram celebrity. This guy who doesn't have any certifications, no degree, no experience, but he looks buff, look cool, and he's attached to a company that's pumping a ton of marketing money behind him, and there is a line out the door to take pictures with this guy. This is how upside down yeah. this industry Man, is. It's manufactured uh, manufactured authority. It's really not any different than when the magazines were you know, parroting these messages. It's just, uh, it's just, it's on steroids now, I guess. It's just a lot worse. It used to, you know, and, and just a lot of the, again, the information that we're getting, you know, it's, it's so infuriating when I'd be in a gym and I'd see a, you know, 17 year old guy who's trying to build muscle and he's doing, you know, cable curls, wearing a weight belt and, uh, wearing a weight belt the whole <laughs> workout, you know? And then I talk to this kid and I'd be like, Hey man, uh, uh, are you, what are you doing with your workout today? And it was just this, you know, conglomeration of cable machine exercises and machine exercises. And I'd ask him, well, when do you deadlift? And he's like, oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't deadlift. I don't want my waist to get any bigger. And uh, it, <laughs> it, it used to, I mean, it would, my, I, w- I would be so enraged that this was the information that we were getting. And then it got even worse. Then you see people wearing Waist trainers. I don't know if you guys are seeing, know what those are. There's the squeam or the yeah, waist. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, oh. Where people are purposely atrophying the, the muscles of their midsection. I mean, I thought we eliminated that in the 19th century with the, the corset. Um, and you're seeing it. Yeah, in, that's in, what it looks like. And you're seeing it in fitness of all places. You're seeing men wear it. <laughs> yeah. you're seeing, my peers were wearing it. I, was, I, I, I never forget the first time some guy tried to hand it to me and tell me to do it. Like, you got to be kidding me. you got to be an idiot to do that. Yeah. And the only reason why you think it works and it drops an inch off your... Yeah, sure it does, because it atrophies those muscles that wrap around your spine, which are kind of important. So I don't know why you would want to do that. <laughs> No, it's bad, man. It was, uh, it's, it's been a mess, and I feel like uh, Mind Pump is slowly uh, making a difference. I mean, it, it took us a good solid year or so before we started to gain some real traction and making a little, a little bit of noise in the industry, and hopefully continuing to go that way and trying to introduce some of these great minds. That's the other thing too: is I would meet these fitness minds uh, and PhDs and great, brilliant people that nobody knew who they were. You know, because because they they don't even own a social media because they don't they're you know fifty years old they're too and, busy learning yeah they they were <laughs> they spent most of their lives in in labs and actually studying and progressing and progressing and they these guys nobody knows who they are right so I, I it's a big important message of ours is to get those type of people out there that's what we do as well I mean Iron Radio is about that we always have guests and there's actually a surprising number of fascinating people the 
egghead slash meathead type where, you know, they actually lift and they have something to say or they have competitive experience. We've had all kinds of MDs and PhDs on the show over the years. And but uh, to your point about marketing, that's what we don't really do much. You know, on our podcast, we have this like niche uh, corner of the Internet where, you know, we every week for nine years, you know, very religious with what we do. But we probably get 30,000 downloads a month. And, you know, people find us. We consider that good. And we kind of don't spend all day on online. I know, Phil, you've talked about this before. But holy God, if you are really busting your ass running a gym, training people, or like me in an academic setting, if you're in a lab or a classroom, uh, no, you can't spend all day. you you got to think to yourself, how is it that they have such a monstrous Internet presence and unfortunately, like you guys said, that's what people are lining up for. But uh, I don't know. Hopefully over time, you, you will see this breakout of, of an evidence-based message maybe uh, with qualified people actually doing the you know podcast and uh, YouTube and whatnot. I think because of the ease of access uh, with information, the Internet's actually done this to a lot of industries, is you start to see uh, transparency become kind of become king and as more and more information gets presented the good information or the accurate information starts to make headway and and you know here's the the, the bottom line is you know marketing is that's one of the things we really try and do is we're trying to fight fire with fire so you know which we have the entertainment piece we have the marketing piece or at least we're working on that and it's like okay you guys can make a lot of noise but so can we except we're going to try and present information that's true and accurate. Now, in the in the short term, it's killed us. I got to be honest with you, a supplement companies wouldn't touch us with a 10-foot pole <laughs> because here I am talking about how you don't need to eat two grams of protein per pound of body weight and how most supplement companies uh, put out, you know, bullshit and how, excuse, you know, excuse my language and how, you know, when they do get tested, you find a lot of them are inaccurate labeling and, you know, this, that, and the other. And so they don't want to touch us. And so we had to figure out, uh, how are we going to make a living doing this when the com- the companies that drive this industry don't like us? Um, and, uh, we figured it out. It, it took us a while to kind of figure it out, but luckily nowadays you can do a podcast and, present information on YouTube and it doesn't cost much money. This wouldn't be possible. What we do and what you guys do wouldn't be possible 15 years ago. Yeah, I think a big part of it is too. I mean, we do it with our podcast and then my facility too is I came to the realization I don't want to touch everybody. I want to touch the right people and not touch them short term, like make a lasting change. Mm -hmm. You know, like basically I get a client and I usually have them forever. Right. And and that's going to, in, in generations to come, the hope is that spreads on further. You know what I'm saying? I can't change everybody. I just can't. So I need to change the few I can get the right way. And hopefully that then they go on. You know, in the next generation, they help five people and, you know, so on. That's excellent. So I, we, I, just, I, don't have the, I don't have the time to touch 50,000 people. Well, I was going to say, that's, that's excellent because, uh, you know, you're, people like you are the ones that are – really making the uh, the real change right um and we have a, la- oh, yeah. a large segment of our audience a very large segment of our audience are uh personal trainers or people who work with other people uh, in in fitness or in wellness and you know a big segment of our careers was training trainers so it's funny because we talk about the misinformation that's out there 
and a lot of that is being promoted by trainers who learned it from uh, the industry. So you have a trainer, for example, I'll give you a simple example. You know, when you become a personal trainer in a big box gym and a client hires you, one of the things that a lot of these trainers think they need to do is they need to hammer their client. Like, oh, this is your first workout. I'm going to make you really sore. And the client expects it and wants it. Like, oh my God, I could barely move today. What a great workout. Um, there isn't a proper assessment that's being done by most trainers. And the information that they're promoting to these clients is uh, this kind of short-term hammer you, um, you know, type of workouts, restrict calories. Okay, we want to lose 20 pounds. We want to do it in you know, 40 days. This is how it's going to work. And so you have uh, even poor records with personal trainers and with the clients. So a lot of the information we present, we do communicate quite a bit to personal trainers. And that's where we're seeing a lot of the, you know, we're seeing some good change there. You know, if you're an effective, if you're truly an effective personal trainer, I always use this on our show. I always tell trainers this. If clients call you and cancel their appointments because they're tired or because they kind of hurt in, a, in their knee or whatever, you're doing something wrong. You want to be the kind of trainer where your client calls you and says, hey, man, I'm not feeling that good today. My back kind of hurts. I'm kind of tired. What can you do uh, in our workout? How can you help me with what we're doing today? That's when you start to notice that you're making a, a true and a, and a good impact. Um, and fortunately, I'm seeing more and more trainers. The caliber of personal trainers today, my God, the, the, so much, the, just generally so much better than when I first became a trainer 20 years ago. Geez, when I was a trainer 20 years ago, the average personal trainer was, it was scary. Today, you still see those scary trainers, but you're starting to see more and more who are understanding the correctional component of exercise, who are understanding exercise pro programming on a different level, um, who are understanding other modalities and how to implement other modalities to kind of, to, you know, to help their clients out. I'm seeing more trainers address stress with their clients, whereas before it was just adding more stress. Um, so I, I am, I, there are some positive trends that I think I'm starting to notice. Well, there's, there's layers to this also. And I think that, you know, and we've tried to do this on the show where we start with kind of the basic, simple stuff like that, like these obvious things that, and we admit that as trainers, when we first started this, we did a lot of this stuff. I mean, we were, I was taught and trained to train and it was a culture within the gym. And, you know, I tell people all the time, God, I, I wouldn't hire me 15 years ago. That's for sure. And so we share that. We openly discuss that. And then the next level to that is, okay, well, what about the, the stuff that I read that's a study? You know, this study says that this is how it is. And, you know, I read this here and I read this and learning how to unpack that information. And we try and help uh, disseminate that information that's being uh, pressed out to everybody by helping them unpack the information and where that message is coming from and what they're trying to accomplish from that. Because that's the thing I get frustrated with too is, man, as I started to learn more, it became just as challenging now at that level because, man, now I, I can't just read a study. Now I got to figure out who, who paid for this study. Where did it come from? What, it, what were the controls? Because even a lot, I would say 50% of the studies that I would read were bad studies. So it's like, God, you can't even reach out to some of the uh, brighter minds that are putting out studies out there because even some of those are biased. So there's definitely levels of this too is helping people with the big rocks first, which is that's really how we built our foundation is that when you talk about supplements and things like that, you're, you're talking about very, very small differences in your, your overall performance, really learning about a balanced whole diet, learning how to train the big compound movements that God, I remember being a trainer 
15 years ago and there would be inches of dust on the squat rack. Nobody, I didn't see a deadlift. I didn't think until like five, six years into training. Like unless you worked in a, you know, one of those power lifting gyms, if you just worked in it or if you just went to a, your local LA fitness, 24 hour fitness, you know, basic golds gym. If you went to one of these basic gyms, people weren't even squatting and deadlifting and overhead pressing some of the best staple movements that we all should be learning to do if we can't do now. So I think our message is is really trying to help people teach the basics, and then once you kind of get that down, then learning how to unpack a lot of the information that's out there. Yeah, as far as unpacking, one of the things one of the things that I was just going to share is it's also you got to think about the idea that when you talk about the scientists, there's not just conflict of interest sometimes, but there's science is reductionist, right? The average person wants to hear, well, is that good or bad? They want to value judgments. Like I don't have a piece of equipment in my lab that measures good you know, or bad. But I can tell you I saw an increase or decrease in muscle mass or in body weight or in the one repetition maximum. Or You get the point. And I think the average person, they almost need to understand this, how stepwise science is. It's reductionist by nature. A hypothesis is a very narrow, very controlled kind of answer, small answer. And people want one, they want to change their practice on one study. And that's not how it works. You know, you have to wait for some sort of consensus, you know, in the literature or the judgment of someone who's going to be this filter, right? We, we're, we're sort of information filters, whether you're uh, a fitness podcaster or, you know, nutrition, like you're talking about trainers being better. Nutrition is a, a subgenre and it's licensed like healthcare. So we have to be careful drifting across different scopes of practice or into physical therapy or, you know, so there's all this stuff. And I think the average person who wants to just pick up a barbell and become stronger, and that, a lot of our audience is either people who are beginning uh, or advanced. Uh, and we talk about the differences between these things, right? We we really focus on barbells and dumbbells and strength training, you know, those dusty pieces of equipment that you were talking about. That is going away right. on on some level, but yeah, there, there's a lot to think about, and people need that sort of information filter, you know, to translate it into a, a usable gold nugget. I guess. I think one thing we have to recognize too is the population as a whole. Everybody thinks they want to learn and get better, <laughs> uh, but a, a very smaller amount actually wants to put in the time. Right. Like, I mean, a good a good point of it is like I could post up a, a ten second video of me doing a seven hundred pound squat. It's meaningless, really, but it'll get 10,000 clicks. If I put up an article that is a 20-minute read but packed full of great information, it'll get 100 hits. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, it's cool. if, we put out, if, if we made a podcast that was purely entertainment value and no real information, we'd probably have five times the listeners. Oh, I hundred percent believe that. That what do you call it, Doug? Edumacation or whatever we call. It. We try and we try and uh, entertain Enter- entertainment education because we knew that we knew that if we yeah, if we came out with a podcast that was purely information that we just we weren't going to grow beyond. We were going to get what we have. We have a lot, which I bet you guys do too. A lot of professional minds, but then we wouldn't attract the average person, and so. You know, we, we try to find this kind of clever formula where we kind of entertain you a little bit, but then at the same time, too, there's always going to be these nuggets yeah. within the episode. And, so, And here's the thing, like, if we really want to make an impact on overall fitness and health uh, on a big, big level, it's it, it has to be a cultural shift. If you look at the societies that are the healthiest in the world – it's because it's a part of their culture. 
whether it's, uh, you know, waking up in the morning to do Tai Chi because this is what we've done for generations or, you know, fasting uh, for this particular period of time because it's part of our religion or these are the foods that we eat in these combinations or whatever because it's part of our culture to value the quality of our food. Uh, food quality is part of their culture where, where if you eat like fast food, they will boycott fast food because it's insulting to them because how dare you make this garbage food? We value this quality. So it's kind of this accidental thing that you've seen for a long time. And I think in, in our country, we have to change the culture. And right now, the culture of fitness is cosmetic. How many people go to the gym and love the gym process? You know who loves doing that? Us, guys on the podcast right now. We're in an echo chamber talking to a bunch of people who love working out, who don't need to hear what we're talking about. How do we reach those other people who they go to the gym because they're motivated because they hate the way their body looks? Well, that doesn't last very long. We need to make the process or help help them enjoy the process. Well, help them connect those dots, their relationship with exercise, their relationship with food, and their relationship with themselves. If we're going to change the culture, we have, we have to help connect those dots. And, and really, I remember, you know, uh, it was really effective uh, for me uh, presenting information in this way to a lot of my clients. I remember when I first learned that uh, the role that the central nervous system played in, uh, in adaptation um, and in fitness and how you, know, you have a type A highly stressed individual who's not getting much sleep, the, probably the last thing you should do with them with their training is hammer the heck out of them. And I remember kind of learning that and presenting that to my clients and uh, how much better they felt when they would come to the gym sometimes and, you know, hey, Sal, I've worked, you know, 13 hours today and I only got five hours of sleep last night. And I'd say, okay, well, today's workout is going to consist of, you know, yin yoga, uh, very light resistance training movements where we're working on control and, and you know, full range of motion. Um, and then we're going to do some breathing mo- exercises. And lo and behold, their bodies would respond. And not only that, but it wasn't this grind and struggle for them. They felt good. Uh, the entire time and really learning that and understanding that. And then you could see that it became a part of their, for them, their culture and how consistent they became with their routine as a result of that. Cool. <laughs> we just have a few minutes left here. Um, any other words you want to add to that? Yeah, I, well, I agree that I think long term there has to be something where they enjoy the process and change their culture. And, and Lonnie probably knows the quote too, but I think it's something like for, someone to be considered a lifelong exerciser. I think they have to do it consistently for, I think it's two years, um, which at first you're like two years, holy crap, that seems forever. But when you compare that to your entire life, it's not really that long. It's nothing. You know, if you can kind of get people over that hump, then they kind of will always stick with it in, in some capacity. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a final gym then. I think that I, I try and stress to a lot of people is, and it goes right in line with what Sal was just saying right now. And what we see a huge rise right now are in the soul cycles, the orange theories, these yeah. small box circuit train, high intensity type classes. And here's something that a lot of people don't realize. Those classes appeal to the people that need it the least. And it's funny how this works. Oh, we, sure. we have we have this spectrum, right? And and it seems that the people, and I say this all the time with like your 
like the real uh, all natural hippie crunchy culture that meditate and are those people could use a little one rep max and a little high intensity every once in a while in their life. And then you have the other end of the spectrum where you've got the, like Sal was saying, you know, grind six days to seven days a week at work, 12 hour days, high stress level job. And then that's, that person is the, the person who loves those types of classes. And it's the worst thing that they could do for them. Their central nervous system is already fried. They're already stressing their body a ton. The last thing they need is this super loud stress signal in their workout routine those people could probably do some meditating maybe some yoga maybe some long rest periods in their training and full body type routines so it's really funny that we all we tend to migrate to these things that we that we like the most and i try and challenge people to really evaluate that and say ask yourself do you think that's really what's best for your body when you look at it yourself as a whole and the way you treat your body the rest of the week and what we find is that's what happens is the really low intensity type personalities well they're you know the the yoga or the hippie guy is doing the yoga when it's like hey listen dude you're you're pretty chill already you're doing a great job of calming that cns down you probably could use a little bit of high intensity every once in a while and the people that are going to these high intensity classes like man you need to put a little bit of yoga into that life or have something that's a little less stressful on you because you're already stressing the shit out of yourself already so i think learning to uh evaluate that and helping people connect that and really lastly a uh, an exercise program that is subpar done consistently is going to be more effective than the best workout uh designed ever that you don't do consistently so oh yeah that's what Phil says. That's a, that's like Phil's mantra, right? <laughs> yeah. So if you you know if you're if you're listening and you're not that motivated, and I used to work out or whatever, you know, do a little something every single day. Frequency uh, is really king when it comes to activity. It's more important than even intensity and and volume. Do a little bit every day, and if you can do it consistently and you enjoy it, you're going to be way better off. And over time, you may find yourself and get more build on more. that. Build that's off it. of that. That's it. Awesome. And where can the people find out more about you? You can find us on iTunes. And we have an, uh, our biggest social media page is Instagram. Uh, our page is at Mind Pump Media. And then if you, we have personal pages. And, and then we have a YouTube channel where we post a brand new video every day on exercise or nutrition. Or there's even some entertainment stuff on there. The YouTube channel is Mind Pump TV. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you guys very much for being on here. We greatly appreciate your time. I know we... Uh Dragged you out of bed super early for the <laughs> West Coast when we're recording this. And I'm out right now in Hood, Oregon, so I can uh, I'm there with you on the time frame. But thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Awesome, guys. Thanks, Thanks guys. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. 
And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each haul of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.